Hello, good morning, and welcome. It's Friday, the 18th of December, 2020, and we're back with episode 175. Today, we've got not one, but two fantastic guests. But before getting started, a friendly reminder, if you please go ahead and drop me five stars on Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of this show, be sure to check me out on all social media at Autonomous Hogue, and of course, our website at hogandco.com. That's H-O-A-G-A-N-D-C-O.com. So today, two guests, John Rossent and Ramon Marares. If the first name sounds familiar, that's because you'll remember John was a guest on my show uh, five episodes back, episode 170 back in November. Uh, we discussed all of his incredible work as chairman of newcities.org and CEO of Comotion. Uh, he also, of course, sits on the advisory board of Saudi Arabia's Neom City, 150 square mile uh, planned smart city powered fully by renewable energy. Ramon Marares is an urban economist, writer, and activist with a passion for people and places. He is currently the director at Placemaking Europe and strategy advisor to a number of cities and large-scale development projects. Before Placemaking Europe, he had served as the chief strategy and finance officer at La Marina de Valencia, Valencia's waterfront redevelopment agency, and a board member of the Worldwide Network of Port Cities. Ramon is co-editor of the book, Our City, Countering Exclusion in Public Space, published in 2019, and he's the host and co-curator of Placemaking Week Europe 2019. His work focuses on the interface between public space and economic development, so you can see why I'm so excited to have both Ramon and John together on today's episode, so I hope you're sitting comfortably. Episode 175, John Rossent and Ramon Marares begins now. Okay, and Ramon, it's good to meet you. And you're out of Valencia, right? Yes, yes, good to meet you, John. I think we, we have a lot of connections in common, actually. See, like... Okay, I love Valencia, right? So, yeah... yeah. Oh, thank you. It's a, <laughs> it's a really comfortable city, actually. But when was the last time you were here? Oh, God, I went to, uh, I was invited to speak at a conference there about, it was actually a long time ago. It was like, I don't know, eight years ago, something like that. <laughs> um, yeah. I like the Formula One track there. Does that count? I, I actually, I was, man, I was, I was managing the post Formula One space. Oh, really? So actually, the, the Formula One company got totally bankrupt, and that was a financial disaster to the city. But really, really like poorly managed. And I had like well, my previous job was actually to manage the ruins of the Formula One. Hey, is this so is is this a thing that I heard about where that the bridge for that segment of the track was built pretty much just for the race and essentially never utilized? No, it, it it was actually moved. It was a uh, like. It, it was a, a, a strong, like a difficult engineering uh, project because actually that was formerly uh, that, that bridge was formerly uh, built in the in the actual harbor in the commercial harbor, and it used to open upwards, you know, it's just to allow the bigger ships to pass through, and then when they build the when they build the Formula One track, they moved it to another place and they changed the mechanism, so instead of moving upwards. Uh, it, it, they change it to move it horizontally, so kind of in a semicircle. 
and it was it's only only closed like very few times only for emergency reasons so it was kind of a pure aesthetical measure to to host the formula one but it like i can tell you that that wasn't the best uh, decision that the city made policy wise not only because of the pitch because it was a bad a big investment that it didn't pay off in the end. interesting all right Cool. Well, neat. So, so yeah, look, I mean, like I said, I'm really just glad to have the two of you uh, chatting here today. I mean, obviously everything that, uh, John, you've been doing uh, with Commotion and of course, newcities.org, uh, not to mention your involvement with Neom City out in Saudi Arabia that we chatted about last time. When, when was this actually? Yeah. yeah, November. So just last month. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, really great stuff. And of course, Ramon, the work you're doing with Placemate, Placemaking Europe. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, I'm just really thrilled to kind of uh, essentially sit back and listen. I mean, I think there's so much fascinating things you guys are doing, so much great overlap. Um, I don't know, John, do you want to give uh, Ramon a bit of further background on what you've been up to lately? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think Ramon probably knows, you know, I wear two hats. I'm, I'm the head of the New Cities Foundation, which in some ways is, you know, it's sort of similar to the mission of placemaking Europe. I mean, you know, we, we want to build better cities. Um, and we look a lot at the impact of new technologies on city making around the world. Um, so we were act pretty active all around the world, all five continents. Um, and, um, you know, we, we look at, you know, we identify specific challenges and areas that we feel are under addressed for one reason or another. Uh, you know, so we look right now at the future of housing, uh, urban well-being, infrastructure, uh, things like that. We're, we, we're doing a lot now on impact on urban, uh, uh, on urban planning of, you know, climate change issues. We just had a great conference um, last week uh, called Higher Ground, which is how cities are actually, we did with, in partnership with the city of Orlando in Florida, which sort of looks at preparations that are being made already to move um, uh, uh, areas of cities literally to higher ground, you know, away from, from sort of rising sea levels. So um, that had a very North American focus. So I think in 2021, we'll probably move that internationally. Um, so new cities is, again, it, it, it's very global in scope. Um, commotion uh, grew out of new cities. Um, about five or six years ago, I mean, you know, if you look at cities, you have to look very closely at what's happening in mobility and transportation and all the disruption there. So we've set up, um, uh, you know, we started one of the first gatherings anywhere in the world, which brought together people working in autonomy, in uh, battery electric and hydrogen, uh, et cetera. Uh, that was probably around seven years ago. We did that in partnership with Google, and then that um, we had conferences in Mountain View, in London, and in Tokyo. And then we kind of discovered, quote unquote, Los Angeles, um, and came to the view that LA, for a variety of reasons, was would emerge as one of the key global hubs of the mobility revolution. And uh, and so we we set up um, Commotion LA. It's, it's a big annual conference. It's now in its fifth year, and uh, and then you know we have um, Commotion Miami where we look at similar issues. Miami is very interesting because it's kind of Latin America, etc. 
Um, and we're looking at a big new project in Europe uh, in, the, in the green hydrogen and mobility space. So that's sort of what we do. Wow. <laughs> Well, <laughs> no, I knew most of it, but it sounds even more impressive uh -huh. when, it's, when you explain it in five minutes. Yeah. But yeah, good to chat to, with you. I actually like, yeah, I'd like to hear from you, like some thoughts about, yeah, like the main conclusions around the future of mobility and especially, especially after COVID. And I'm also very curious about like your approach to new settlements and new cities, because you are yeah. mentioning this 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 thing of USA, but obviously like your experience in Saudi Arabia, yeah. sure. and and on on our side is just I'm I'm a, like one hat of mine is just I'm the director of placemaking Europe, the similar approach to new cities. So we we are like working on, on on creating better cities from the perspective of engagement and public space. So basically, it's a starting starting to understand the city from the elements that are common, but also I think one of the nice things to discuss is I think placemaking. In Europe, it grows prominence as well, like kind of a reaction of some failures in terms of creating infrastructure that didn't work very well. No, yeah. so somehow it is about matching in a in a best way the tangible and the intangible of the city, the things that are built, like from cars to apartments, to uh, to the like to the feelings with the feelings of people under the stars and the demands and the economic activity and so on. Yeah. So I'm curious about like how do you see the, the relations between the future of mobility in public space uh, towards public space and around public sphere? How do you see the future of European cities and how do you see like this new the possibility of new cities placed in this in this new kind of possibilities that emerge? Well, look, I think what impresses me, uh, frankly, about what you're doing, Ramon, in Placemaking Europe is that you have a very holistic um, approach um, you know, to city building, to placemaking, which I think is really is more and more important because I think one danger all of us practitioners have, I mean, practitioners in the kind of um, the mobility space, or the urban space, is that we're kind of in our own little silos. And... Uh, you know, the more that we can contextualize um, our activities, uh, the better it is, I think, the more effective it is. So, you know, I, I come across that over and over again. Uh, you know, what we do in Commotion is, uh, you know, the sort of public sector only talks to the public sector, private sector only to the private sector. People in, let's say, autonomous mobility are just in that kind of vertical. And I think, you know, we, we, one of the reasons we moved to create commotion was to bring public and private together, to bring people from um, different disciplines together with a view to uh, uh, fulfilling the promise of, of, of the mobility and transportation revolution. Um, and what that can mean for cities. So, you know, we're at such a, a turning point in, in, um, in, I don't want to say history, but a lot of things are coming together now that are so interesting. And I think we've reached the end of this you know, century, century and a half long process of urbanization that has been carried out around the motor car. That's ending now. Um, what's ending now also is, you know, we're coming out of the hydrocarbon age and, and one obviously is related to the other. Um, you know, I, I'm really 
enthusiastic uh, speaking as an American with the incoming administration in Washington. I mean, it's such a break oh, yes. with <laughs> the last four years of completely couch, you know, pulling out of the Paris climate agreement, kowtowing to the oil and gas, um, you know, uh, uh, lobbies. Um, it is such a, I mean, just looking at, at President-elect Biden's um, uh, choices for yep. transportation, Department of Energy, some of the key posts in the White House, the appointment of um, uh, John Kerry as you know, sort of climate czar, if you will. It's such a shift in what we've, you know, over the last half decade. So that's, I'm very enthusiastic about that. It's certainly a relief to say the least. And we can be <laughs> sure that everybody else around the world is probably celebrating same as, same as you and I. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to in, interject a quick kind of, as I said, kind of a loaded question, kind of bouncing off what you just started here. Um, it was suggested to me not too long ago that it's important to for cities to kind of tackle these different layers presented by the advent of autonomous vehicles to kind of tackle these in series rather than in parallel. So for example, say getting the technology out there first, then worrying about say any environmental benefits or finally dealing with traffic issues. And it occurred to me, I'm just curious from a city design point of view, again, maybe this is just too broad of too loaded of a question. I don't know. Um, how, how are these generally being tackled right now? I mean, I would imagine obviously John with respect to the NOAM project, this then, as I sort of joked, sort of being a real life Sim City, I'm guessing this then is a sort of thing where you can indeed do all these things in parallel, right? But like typically, assuming currently living, breathing cities can't do these at the same time, how are these then juggled? How are these presented? So the, the point being that it was suggested, look, we'll deal with traffic issues later. <laughs> Let's first deal with these other things first. What, what do you guys think? I well, I think it's a mistake. I think that um, look, I, I, I don't want to hog the hog the mic, but I think you know this is also such a, a, a important moment in time because we're coming out of this uh, uh, enormous pandemic that has changed the world and that has sped up so many um, uh, so much of the digital revolution. I mean, you know, uh, all of us today are on the podcast, you know, we're working remotely. The world has transitioned really pretty well to that. So I think, you know, we're going to have, you know, the hall in cities, the hollowing out of retail. Um, we have a huge number of people who will continue to work remotely and from home, even after COVID, because it's, you know, it's more economical, it's more efficient and we've gotten used to it, et cetera. So I think we're going to, we have also, I think it's here to stay in a lot of cities, um, you know, especially knowledge workers who have high incomes will, are, are starting to vote with their feet and they're moving to smaller cities, they're moving to the countryside, et cetera. So we're going to have a hollowing out of some uh, inner city cores in terms of residential. And so we're going to have to look very seriously about um, redesigning zoning. And that's true for Europe as, as it is for North America, by the way. So I think, you know, this is happening at a time when we're at on the cusp of autonomous transportation. So we have to look at things in parallel, I think. It's a mistake to kind of, again, to silo things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do agree, John. I think like exactly what you're saying about 
the damage that silos have been doing during the last years around, uh, in city planning are very substantial. And probably we think in a historical perspective, this kind of working in silos, it's been something kind of anecdotal. No, It only happened in the last 40 years. Traditionally, like cities has been understood in a, on the one hand in a more humanistic way. So a lot of disciplines involved around building them in a, in a, in a profound way. On the other hand, like most self, self-built as well, obviously, because everyone had the agency and that's what's happening in, uh, in big parts of the world at the same time. And I do not think that the answer for industry-specific issues nowadays would be silos anymore. Because obviously if we talk about, I don't know, the people that is working with like high-speed trains that will have their answers around high-speed trains, other ones that are uh, working in public sector, kind of uh, digitalizing public sector, they're very concerned about that. But that's not working anymore. And I do think like there is kind of a, a quite evident parallelism. No? So John, you were saying as well how uh, the, the, more, the, the, the traditional owned car that we that has been so prominent during the last decade is coming to an end, and probably it will will totally overlap in the with the period of managing city in silos. So I do expect that the end of the owned car, car like uh, fueled by like 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 gasoline, no, uh, would be the end of this of this silos managing as well. And we need to be. I don't know, we need more humble mechanisms, but we need better interaction, better dialogue, and a fundamental understanding that industries are essentially on a service or something bigger, which is cities. Yeah, I agree. And I think another thing to look at, which is something we, we've started to look at quite closely, is the um, revolution in industrial processes, which is bringing industry back into the city. So in, in a very real way. And, and you know, for example, in, so, so traditionally, you know, if you were going to build a new car, you would spend two or three billion dollars or euros. You'd have a greenfield site. You direct a massive manufacturing plant and you start producing cars. That's very 20th century. In the 21st century, you have much, much smaller uh, industrial, much cleaner sort of uh, industrial processes that can be uh, uh, realized within a city. So within my own city, within Los Angeles already, we have uh, several uh, new, totally new car automobile startups that are producing automobiles within the city. You know, you can do that in a clean fashion. Um, So I think, you know, what we think of as cities is going to really change quite dramatically in the future. But actually, I think that it means also coming back from something that was very common some decades ago. So I some, sometimes say as well that the, if you think about the innovation districts, probably the, the innovation district of the near future would be more similar to the market district of 1950s, much more similar to those market districts that they, they, they will be to the financial and, and business districts of the beginning of the 2000s or of the early 90s, yeah. because we need mixed use, we need mingling, we need more cows somehow, and that means cities somehow, no? And I think, luckily enough, in the case of Europe, we didn't lose that track so much, no? And, and kind of the mingling of different uses is still quite present in cities, and now it's just probably the time that cities that gave up on that option 
some decades ago to try to rediscover that. But it's not only because industry is more clean, obviously that's one one side of it, but also because there are a totally different ways to to understand work. And if we are considering that because of precisely what we are doing, you know, recording a podcast and you are in America, I'm here in Southern Europe, and we can do that. And we understand which is the profound influence of these technologies in the way we work, totally speed up by the pandemics. But we all know, I think at least we all three know, that that doesn't mean the end of cities. Probably they will be different, but they will, won't die. But that, that fundamentally means that the quality of interaction has to increase we will go to a place because there is a quality of a place. And that's very, very, very important if we, if we want to understand the economic poles that we will emerge in the following years. Oh, yeah. I, I, Ramon, I, amen. <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> I, I, have, I have a question. Um, why does it seem like, and I don't even know if this is accurate, and indeed it's just anecdotal, but why does it seem like this transition to an entirely new well, future in every sense, whether it's the, you know, the advent of connected autonomous electric shared vehicles, which then is going to require, obviously, this renewed sense of proper city design to optimize this new form of transit, moving away from private ownership. Why does it seem like this transition is, at best, more challenging than any such transition in the past? And at worst, that it seems like there's a lot of resistance to it. Is that even a valid question? Like, do you guys get what I'm asking? Does it? Well, I mean, look, from Calif- I'm based in California, okay, and Southern California, where people, you know, uh, owning your own car is an article of religion. I mean, it is just. I mean, I'm kind of right there, too. You know, I love cars, too. So I get that. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> no, no, but, but I mean, but it, 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 this, is, this is actually, Mark, I think you've raised a very important point because it's incumbent on all of us who are interested in building a better future for cities, for our children, et cetera, that we're careful not to make this a, um, a kind of act of war against people who like cars and are interested in cars. I mean, I've seen people here in Los Angeles who, who you know, for whom this is like a second amendment issue. It's like, you know, in America, <laughs> second amendment is, you know, your right to own guns and Europeans will never understand never understand that about uh, the American culture, but it's, it's, we have to be, we don't want to make enemies of these people. I mean, I think this will happen naturally over time. You have to prod it along with, you know, in a regulatory sense, but I, I don't want a world in which it's sort of us against them. I think that's, we have to bring everybody along. It's really important, I think, um, because, you know, the future is going to be, very multimodal, you know, well, there'll be all sorts of ways uh, that you can get around a city, one of which will be autonomous transportation. But, you know, there'll be some people who like their cars and can afford it. And, you know, you let them do it and you, you know, you tax gasoline, et cetera, whatever. But um, don't, let's not make this a, a, a kind of us versus them. You know, let's not create a new civil war about this because that there is that possibility and, I, and we need to avoid that, I think. So, John, that's a super good point. I, and I actually love that sort of, what shall we say, social layer avoiding that conflict. That, that's that's super clever. I love that. But but is then the difference simply the fact that in previous historical shifts, just picking on transit for the moment, say whether it was the advent of the locomotive, whether it was the automobile itself, is the difference that in the past, 
new forms of transit and therefore the city design and changes that went along with them didn't necessitate the abandonment of something else just to enjoy it. Whereas this, it's almost like there's a mutual exclusive assumption as between shared connected vehicles versus private vehicles. Is that what the issue is here? Ramon? <laughs> uh, like, it's very interesting. Obviously, I've never, like, I don't have those attached feelings towards a specific good such as the car, but I do understand the appeal of the car. So it's a very complex issue. And I understand that it's touching the kind of the emotions, kind of the life, no? Because it's been kind of a, a pillar in certain, yeah, it's a symbol of success. It's something that is one of the biggest investments that families do in their lives. So I do understand it. But I do think that still uh, mobility, it's a, de it's a derived demand. It depends on other kind of things, no? So we still have the tools of planning, economy, where the wars are happening. So there is mobility when there is the need to move, no? And I think that's one of the biggest debates. For me, what I think is just, am I talking as an external, no? And I think now precisely we have that challenge, no? This us versus them in America is very, it's a, a very pertinent debate, no? It's, a, it's something that has to be discussed, discussed and the, the new administration has to face because at least we perceive from other, the other side of the ocean that the gap that divides, it's increasing in all sorts of ways. And, and, and it, it's going to be a big challenge, no? But I don't know, it's just, for me, it's just more fundamental to understand how the new economic activity is going to be distributed. Because what I think is just, it's not going to be that we are taking the car out of the people that is willing to live really far away on a suburb. The problem is that maybe with the relocation of jobs, they will be, they will be living in something that they will become really close to ghettos, maybe in 2030, because their jobs opportunities will be too far away. And that's not going to be solved in any case of autonomous vehicles, a better mass transit or something like that. So I think like probably the fundamental debate, it's about economic structure and, uh, and economic geography. And then of course, we have to live with the, also the debate about feelings around the, the vehicle, but that's again a derived debate, no? So we maybe are forgetting the most important one, which is very, very dramatic. Well, maybe I'm missing something. I'm just not understanding. I mean, I thought I thought one of the assumptions for this autonomous vehicle future is precisely that it will enable, in a good way, it will enable people to live further away from city cores. And I say in a good way, in the sense that it'll open up new opportunities for people to, for example, afford better living conditions, larger homes, say, at a lower price. Yes, granted, this would theoretically then increase the price of the suburbs. I get that, which obviously we're seeing happen already. But but isn't this a potential benefit? I mean, this would give people more flexibility. Not necessarily. We can have also autonomous vehicles that can manage in a monopolized way that are controlled by yeah. certain companies. It can happen that they turn out to be quite expensive. So we really cannot forecast that. There are all sorts of outcomes that we can decide to have. But it doesn't mean that we will have them. So I think there is a high risk as well to not uh, bridge but increase inequalities, which is probably the fundamental issues in cities nowadays. No, So obviously we can share our big desires, but how can we guarantee that? Technology in itself won't do it. I think we need... But why... Yeah, but, but I think, you know, I think the, the market, so to speak, market forces, I mean... 
will play a big role. I mean, and, you know, if you look at the one of the huge problems, if not the biggest problem in every big city um, in the world, virtually over the last the last generation has been the price of housing. And that has, you know, led to all sorts of you know, inequalities, et cetera. And what we're seeing now as a result of COVID, but also as sort of long-term shift is a repricing of housing in cities. So if you're going to start, you know, converting areas of, uh, you know, dense downtown business districts to residential, as we will have to do, because, you know, there, there's not going to be a market for this office space. You know, that is going to lead to repricing in a positive downwards of housing. It will, it will uh, give access to people uh, to housing that, that didn't have access to it before, which is really important. It's been, been a big, big problem, certainly in American cities. And so, you know, there's a kind of positive benefit to, to this. And it's the market forces that are kind of working. Um, but we have to, that has to be expressed in, in changes in zoning and in the regulatory um, framework. Uh, very, very important. That's, that's one of the big challenges. And I really hope, you know, by the way, that, you know, the new administration in Washington uh, will look at this. Um, but we've got to, in some big sense, sort of reinvent what a city is uh, over the next generation. So it, we have to look at zoning. Very, very important uh, issue, I think. No, no, that was precisely trying to refer that we have to think about zoning and when, where the people is living, where the economic activity is happening. And there the other, yeah, the other will follow. But again, it's just, I see a lot of advantages in the new technology around mobility, especially in autonomous vehicles. I have problems to, to envision how this is helping to bridge uh, economic divides. You know, how, how, how is it going to help to, to create more inclusive communities? So maybe we have. But, to... but can't we make an easy assumption based on existing transit solutions that are so widespread throughout Europe? So, for example, I feel like one of the, and I think it's a thing that I've mentioned. Actually, John, you and I probably talked about this last time too. Like I've often suggested, everybody talks about autonomous vehicles as replacing people's private, privately owned cars in the near term, and even in the medium term, I don't think that's very imminently likely at all. I think a much more realistic deployment, if only from a business model point of view is rather that these things will be additions to existing public transit systems. So at the end of the day, you know, I've often used the analogy, what's the difference between an autonomous car and a plane? Yep. But one could say, what's the difference between an AV and a train for that matter? So if these are ultimately deployed, again, especially initially in the near kind of medium term, how are these going to be any different? And therefore, why would they be any worse for society potentially? No, I, uh, than a train system. I, I don't think there will be any worse, but that's that will ca- qualify it as transit. So I think we expect, and in the particular case of, of, of Europe, I think that will happen because now, of course, COVID is just uh, challenging the systems of public transport and transit generally. But I think in Europe, at least they are consistent enough to be resilient. And I do think this autonomous devices, in any sense, are helping to improve those transit systems. And we are seeing that already. You now there are just... Uh, trains that move without a driver and so on, and that's happening. But it's still, still transit. So we, we think it's like, do we expect that technology is going to improve the quality of and efficiency of, of, of transit services? Of course, and I hope so. 
How do I yeah. think that individually used AVs are going to bridge the gap, the economic divide, divide between communities? I'm not that sure, even though they can be really beneficial in other senses. Yeah. I think also, you know, I think what's one of the interesting things that we see happening is this sort of explosion of diverse form factors of vehicles that is really something new under the sun. So if you look sort of historically, you know, you had, you know, a car and a car could be an expensive BMW or a less expensive Volkswagen, but it was essentially the same big, heavy beast that ran on gasoline, right? And everybody had one. You know, what we're seeing now is, uh, my case is interesting. I mean, I, and it's sort of typical. I mean, I live in a single family house in, 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 uh, in Los Angeles and Santa Monica. And we've given up our gas car. I, I drive a small electric vehicle car, but we also have electric bikes and scooters. And which we, which we use a lot now instead of, so instead of taking the gas guzzler out sort of 10 blocks to buy a loaf of bread and bring it back, we'll go in, you know, on a scooter, on an electric bike. And, a, and that's happening a lot. And, and it's sort of interesting to watch the, um, just how the form factor for these new kinds of vehicles are developing. I mean, one, there's an entirely new class of vehicle, which is ultra lightweight electric cars, I guess, you know, one or two mm -hmm. years, but we're seeing a lot of them beginning to be on the market. And it, it kind of makes sense. You know, most trips, if you live in a city, most trips are, you know, one or two or three miles. And these are quite sufficient. You don't need a SUV for God's sake. And, uh, you know, an SUV is good if you want it because you're going a weekend in the mountains, you rent one and, it, and it's, it's, and that's becoming easier. So you renting a car now, means you do it online on your computer. The car arrives at 10 a.m. tomorrow morning at your house. You don't even have to go to an agency to pick it up. So it's a big, you know, a lot of things are shifting and, and changing. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think one of the throwaway arguments, though, that I myself have often made in the past, probably to your point, John, because I also lived in L.A. for so long and in San Diego <laughs> as well, is that, you know, it is a very symbolic thing for a lot of folks. But I think it's easy to assume that symbolic attachment, that status attachment, I think it's easy to assume that throughout, you know, even a small majority of the population. I think realistically, that's probably just not the case. I think probably most people probably don't actually have any sort of symbolic or status attachment to their vehicles. They just like the practical convenience of having their own thing. And I think that's a perfectly normal assumption. Um, right. Cause I often like to suggest that once you eliminate that status element or that, 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 that emotional bond, then it's not as much of an issue, but people are always going to want to have their own thing. It's just easier and simpler. So you're right though, to the point that we can have sort of one and two seater electric pods Okay, sure. There's still going to be all those folks who need to be seen in their S classes. I get it, but that's not going to be most people. No, but that's you know, that's yeah, I agree. If you look at the turn of the last century, you know, everybody went around cities on, um, you know, with horses and you know, right. horse and carriage, etc. And then you had the car, you know, around 1900, 1910, etc. And which was in its first manifestation was known as the horseless carriage, of course. Right. So you had within a generation, everybody shifted to cars, but there were still people, I mean, wealthy people who, you know, 
love their horses and went around on horses. And that's still the case. I mean, you know. But uh, it it will be the same. I I think it will be a kind of, you know, evolution. uh, Totally agreed. It's always going to be a sport, if nothing else. I mean, uh, I'll certainly be the first in line to get back to some tracks at some point. I mean, actually, to the point of COVID, what's a safer, socially distant sport than a track day, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I think there will be always uh, status good. No, so obviously we are not we are not uh, losing that. But I think this rising disconnection between status good and ownership in all in all kinds of ownership. So we are seeing it even in fashion. No, so there are kind of all, all sorts of 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 apps and 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 startups that are just renting you this kind of super super fancy dress for a special specific occasion and obviously like it's well repeated but i think we are just turning towards experience and that's affecting the mobility system as well and we are seeing how even the most advanced even transit right it's a public transport the most advanced public transport systems are thinking about that about how does it provide to you and which is the experience riding no and I, for me it's fascinating fascinating the work that are doing the train company for instance in the netherlands not that they're creating the new trend where they they are almost kind of a between a living room and a co-working space so you have your your little happy mm-hmm. office a, a dark a more dark room to rest uh, a, a silent wagon and so on and that's also status no it, it means that the experience yes. the food that we are having is really really good, good quality and it has absolutely nothing to do with ownership and we are like like seeing the same obviously in in housing ownership as well no i'm coming like in southern europe it was very very common to own two or even three places that's not the case anymore yeah i quite agree and by the way i mean if the future uh is in fact is going to involve you know high-paid knowledge workers moving to you know the high sierras or something like that um they will not be coming to the to like a restaurant in the city in a private car <laughs> in, in, in 25 years, they'll be hopping into an electric vertical takeoff and landing uh, aircraft, which will be autonomous, of course. And I, I suspect that's what will, that's the conveyance that will take them into the city in the future, by the way. Mm-hmm. But, um, but maybe that's for another podcast, Mark. <laughs> it's true. I, I haven't talked too much about flying vehicles. That's true. As much as I love flight generally. Sorry, Ramon. No, what? no. That, that, I'm curious about one thing because Jen has this fantastic uh, experience, not only because uh, one of your, your the foundation is called New Cities, but you are very used to work with New Cities, uh, both in, in America and in Saudi Arabia. And I'm, I'm wondering how is your approach to that? No, because the thing is, normally we talk about mobility and the future of mobility. It's always kind of reacting to an urban structure that already exists. And even though we are yeah. fundamentally willing to change how cities are built, they're still there. No? So there are layers and layers of history, heritage, memories, feelings in those particular yeah. places. But how are you facing this, I don't know, this privilege that no many, not many professionals have of starting from a, a, a blank page and starting from scratch? How are you approaching that? Well, I mean, I think that's that's what's so exciting about the Neom project in Northwest Saudi Arabia is because it's the first major new city, certainly of the 21st century, uh, or in history, in fact, that is um, being designed around two premises. Um, one is the uh, the shift away from fossil fuels. So it's it's Neom is completely um, 
designed around um, uh, renewable energy, both sort of wind and solar, number one. And number two, it's designed with the mobility revolution, with uh, the idea that would be ubiquitous autonomous vehicles, um, very little or no uh, ownership, uh, private ownership of internal combustion engine vehicles. So it's a very radical departure. Uh, I, you know, I mean, for someone like me, for for us, it's it's extremely exciting. And I think the fact that the world's largest oil exporter is behind this is is just a sign of the times. You know, where we're going. And it's really large too, right? Isn't it 150 square kilometers? Uh, it's very it, yeah. It means the size of San Francisco. It well, it's the size of Belgium or Israel. So it, it's Whoa. it's almost a. You know, sort of independent country. So the, the actual area of formal urbanization is maybe one or 2% of, of the land area. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons that it's, that's so exciting. One of the things that is so exciting is that it's, it's virtually untouched land. I mean, it's gorgeous sort of coast and, and untouched coral reefs and mountains and deserts and all sorts of things. And you know, the idea is it will not be paved over with uh, with freeways and motorways. Um, you know, if you have to get from one, you know, the, the urbanized part of Neom to uh, a rural hotel or a settlement, you will probably hop on a, um, one of these, you know, hydrogen powered or, or battery electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. And so you you will kind of leapfrog over you know the freeway stage of development, let's say. Uh, yeah, curious, like, may I ask you a couple of, of questions because I'm very curious about that. The, the first sure. will be like, what what did you learn from other cases? Because, uh, for instance, now we have the, the case of Master City that. Not sure if we can qualify it of not funny, John. Remember, I asked you about this too. Yeah, but that's the first one. No, no, other like we've seen another like a lot of countries not trying to move the capital to another place, and I have the feeling that I don't know. It's just we are not being able. No, maybe because of democracy or other forces, but we are not able to <laughs> to start cities from scratch and make it function really well. But that's the first question. What we, did you learn from other experience? And the other question I'm really wondering, because I, I already mentioned, but I'm really concerned uh, about the issue of inclusion. And, and, and particularly in Neon, it's going to require a lot of workers, low-paid jobs, people that is going there to actually build it. And how are you dealing with the issue of inclusion from mm-hmm. the beginning? Yeah. Those two questions I'm really, okay. really curious. Can, can I suggest an unsugar-coated uh, version of that second part? Obviously, that was one of the critiques that, that's been leveraged against Dubai, for instance, how a lot of its infrastructure was built, right, insofar as the workforce, right? Is that remote, yeah, yeah. somewhat what you're alluding exactly, to? Exactly, yeah. You know, or, 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 or Qatar, for example. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, exactly. Billions and billions going, you know, because they're preparing for the World Cup. Exactly, exactly. And uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a very good point. And I think, um, you know, the NEOM authority has been very explicit about, um, uh, you know, saying that workers that are being brought in to build will be, um, you know, treated very, very well. I mean, I, I can't go to the details, but it will be quite different from, I think, anything else, certainly in the Gulf region, number one. Um, and uh, one of the interesting things about NEOM is that it has its own completely separate 
legal and regulatory framework separate right. from kingdom right. of Saudi Arabia and enshrined in that legal framework is, um, you know, complete equality, uh, between men and women, which is not necessarily the case in other parts of the Middle East or in Saudi Arabia, although that country also is moving quite rapidly. Um, so there's that, uh, you know, uh, uh, freedom of speech, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, they're very, very clearly focused on attracting uh, investment and um, uh, 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 knowledge workers from around the world who might want to relocate there. And so they understand they have to make an attractive sort of legal framework, et cetera. So I, I you know, we'll see. I mean, it's very, very early stages, but I'm, I'm quite confident about it. It's an experiment. And, and, and to your point, Ramon, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, cities are organic things. And, you know, the, the old saying goes that, you know, uh, if you want to build a successful city is you build a university and you wait 200 or 300 <laughs> years. And I love that. I've, I've never heard that. That's great, though. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, but so so we're obviously, you know, trying to move much, much faster than that. But uh, look, you're right. I mean, you know, if you look at Brasilia or Canberra oh, yeah. or, or you know other new cities, nine out of ten are are failures in many ways. Um, so I don't know. I think you know we'll just have to wait and see. But I think if Neom can start attracting uh, you know investors, knowledge workers, startups, etc., and that's very much the direction we're going in, it can be interesting. It's it's you know they're they're you know, early stage companies want an attractive legal framework to work in that, you know, protects their investments. Uh, I think people are interested in the quality of life. And, it, you know, the, the interesting thing about Neom is that, you know, it's beautiful air. It's actually a really great climate, very much a Mediterranean climate, more than it is a kind of Persian Gulf climate. Um, so you had me at Mediterranean. That sounds amazing. So, <laughs> yeah, and, and it's gorgeous, you know. So, you know, I don't know if, I would want to kind of uh, pull up my stakes and move there. But, uh, you know, I think there will be people who will do that. But, you know, it's it's cities are random things. I mean, it, it's it's they can't be totally planned. And if you over plan them, you know, that's just not consistent with what human beings are. And so but, you know, I don't know. I, I it's a it's a it's a good bet, I think. And, and speaking of planning cities, I mean, and to the previous point of the discussion, the kind of, I mean, to use the loaded term exodus from city centers, at least for the moment anyway, uh, doesn't this take a pretty heavy toll on some of the more, shall we say, traditionally cultural type things? I mean, for example, such basic things as, I don't know, museums, the ballet, opera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, musical venues generally, performing arts, these types of things, if I'm not mistaken, these require the concentrated focus of human talent and ingenuity and everyone coming together in these cores. In other words, but for the cores, I don't think we would have those sorts of performing yeah. arts generally. Yeah. Is that not the case? Yeah. And so if that's true, what yeah. happens as we kind of move away from centralized city cores? What happens? To I elements? think it's very difficult to build this critical mass. And let me share with, with you a story because I think it's very illustrative. I was just consulting a city together with the former mayor of Bilbao. No? And Bilbao is very well known by, for the Guggenheim Museum, which is one right. of the flagship projects that a lot of cities has been trying to copy all around, all around the world. 
and and we were both in a private meeting with the mayor and a couple of of other other civil servants of the city, and 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 this guy, the former mayor of Bilbao, Ivon Areso, was explaining the, like the whole process of transforming this area of Bilbao, and he didn't even mention Guggenheim a single time, and then someone from the audience asked him, why didn't you you mention the Guggenheim? And he basically said, because the Guggenheim was just the icing on the cake. And that was so true. The thing is, a lot of cities try to copy the whole process, just building the Guggenheim. And that hard works. Yeah. It's just very difficult to, to build a really high-quality ballet or opera or orchestra or whatever, just building the infrastructure or a fancy new building. It's just It needs much more from that. Yeah. And that's very, very difficult. It's uncontrolled, it's unplanned, and it's time. And also, of course, it needs humility because you gen- cannot just go and buy that. It never works. Look, yeah. that's a really great point. Um, but look, I'm really glad we got both of you on together to finally have a bit of a chat, get you both acquainted anyway. And um, I think on that note, I'd like to wish you both happy holidays and Thank goodness 2020 is finally going to be behind us. I'm looking forward to 21. <laughs> Let's not have too high expectations, please. <laughs> uh, fair enough. Okay. But thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks. Good to meet you, Ramon. Yeah, good to meet you. All right, John, Ramon, thanks very much. Take care. Take Bye-bye. Care. Bye-bye. All right, well, that is a wrap for today. And indeed, this week, and coming up on Tuesday next week, we've got another wonderful guest as we Get ready to close out the season. And don't forget, coming up on Christmas Day will be my long-awaited Tesla Model Y review video on my YouTube channel, Autonomous Hogue. But until then, thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful weekend. Keep well, be safe. See you back here on Tuesday. Bye-bye.